On the east side of O'Hare is a little village known as Schiller Park. And inside of that village is a forest known as the Schiller Woods. And inside of the woods is an old rickety water pump with a magical reputation. Many call this pump Chicago's very own Fountain of Youth. And for over 70 years, Chicagoans have journeyed to this water pump, have come and stood in line waiting their turn to fill their bottles, their jugs with the magical water. And while many will say that they enjoy the water because of its superior taste, many others are convinced to the core of their being that those waters have magical powers, that they will bless those who drink it with enduring youth. The superstition leads many people to drink only that water every day, year after year. And they would even claim that they can feel the effect of the water stirring deep within them. Len Dufkis is the maintenance supervisor for Schiller Woods. And he would attest that he is forced to repair this pump every single year due to its nearly perpetual use. The legends of the magical qualities of the water from this pump have led authorities to run scientific tests, analysis of the water to see if it's extraordinary. Well, the tests have come back indicating it's just water, nothing exceptional about it. And yet those results will never stop the believers from believing. You know, it really is good water, but as far as there being magical powers in it, forgive me for remaining the skeptic. And while the lines may not prove that there's power in the water, those lines do prove that there is longing in the people. They long for life. We all long for life. We want to live forever. And unfortunately, our aging bodies remind us that our days are numbered and our lives are slipping away very quickly. It's a rather uneasy realization. What we give for our own fountain of youth, what we give for a way that we could be alive, that we could feel young, and that we could enjoy that vitality forever. Forever young, do you really want to live forever? We all do. Deep down, every one of us yearns for vitality that lasts forever. I, I got some of the water here. I, I, I got this bottle from Schiller Woods. It's for sale. No, it's not for sale. <laughs> the truth is, as I mentioned, I, I just don't think it does anything for you. You may yearn 
for that enduring youth, but the water will never, no matter how much of it you drink, it'll never take care of this problem. Do you know what this is? This is the problem of death. The truth is this luring, looming reality is in front of us all. You know, they used to say that no matter what journey you may take, and our journeys all differ, they all end in the old pine box. The reality is that every single one of us, one of these days, we're going to end up, you know, in the box. I'm not looking forward to that moment. Isn't that embarrassing that everybody walks past your casket to look at you, right? All your friends and family come to look at you, and they'll all say nice things like, oh, she looks beautiful, he looks great. They're lying. You've never looked worse in your whole life, you know. You don't even get to do your own hair, your own makeup, and they'll comment, oh, they made them look so peaceful. Oh, fooey. It is an awkward moment, but it's coming. It's coming for every one of us, and it's not that far away. Some of you young people are like, ah, oh, death. I'm not worried about death. It's so far away. Let's do a little, little experiment, shall we? Let's call this the decade analysis. So how many decades old are you? And let's it's round. I have to confess. So I will be 48 in June. I'd love to round down to four decades, but that would not be accurate. So I will confess I'm rounding up to five decades. So that's all. I think it would be healthy for us all to just admit how many decades we are. So with great pride, and if you must lie, lie, we, you are in church, mind you, all right? <laughs> round to the nearest decade, and if you got to put up Two full hands, do so with gusto. But raise your hands and, and show us how many decades old you are. You're not going to do it. Some of you are like, no, I won't. Huh? All right, well, here's the problem as I see it. I've done the research and I found out that the average American lives to be almost 80, eight decades which is really good, you know, compared to other countries, we're in a good place. But even so, uh, if I've got eight decades and I've already lived five, I've only got three left. And the thing I'm finding these days is that decades are passing a lot quicker than they used to. When I was a kid, those early decades of my youth, I mean, when you're in elementary school, doesn't a year feel like a lifetime? A, a, A summer break just lasts forever. It was great. But these days, it seems like I blink and another decade has gone by. These days, you know, my kids are just growing up so fast. And I realize five gone, these last three decades are going to pass so quickly. Am I trying to make you feel bad? No. I'm trying to make you realize that death is a reality for all of us, and ignoring it, it's not the right solution. Some people want to say, I'm not going to die, I'm not going to die, and they try to just, you know, listen, in every journey, the end is a very important part of that journey, and with life, death is a very important part of it, and we need to be able to face it well. One of my goals is to be able to look at my own death and to say, doesn't freak me out. I'm not scared of it. 
I'm not there yet, just for the record, but I want to get to where I can say I even have a little bit of excitement in regards to the end of my earthly life. And you say, how could that be? Here's how. A well-integrated resurrection theology, and that's some big words, simply stated that what we're here to celebrate, Easter, is all about Jesus resurrecting and making resurrection available to his followers. And when that is understood and believed, and when we view life through that lens, changes everything. And we can get to a point where we say, you know what? Death is just doesn't affect me like it used to. You know, this passage that I am so excited to study with you is so powerful towards this end. It's really short, only one verse. Can you handle one verse? I think so. One verse, and yet when understood, oh my, the power it can yield in our lives, changing our whole perspective on death. It's found in the book of Revelation, which was written by one of Jesus' 12 disciples. His name was John. And John is an old man at the time that he writes this book. In fact, if he were to put up his fingers, he'd have to go like this. He was in his 90s, all right? And that's really rare back in those days for someone to live into their 90s. It's even more rare for a Christian to live into their 90s in those days because Christians were being killed. John's the only of Jesus' disciples still alive and the only one who wasn't executed for their faith. Centuries earlier, the other disciples had all refused to deny their belief in the resurrection of Christ, their faith in Christ. And as a result, the Romans killed them. For whatever reason, John was spared. God's sovereignty, obviously, saving him. But John was arrested, and he was imprisoned. And oddly enough, he was imprisoned on an island. In those ancient days, they used islands as a prison. And there was an island called Patmos, where John has been exiled. And so here's an old man on an island. And one glorious morning, as he is worshiping God, Jesus Christ appears to him in a vision. You know, you probably have never had a vision. I haven't either. And it's hard for us to imagine what it would be like. But John undeniably saw and heard Christ speaking to him. And the book of Revelation is just that, the revelation of Jesus to John and to us as a result. But we're going to be looking in the first chapter, in the 18th verse, and in Though the message of Revelation speaks to various churches and to many people, the first words that burst out of Jesus' mouth are to John. Did you know that John and Jesus were best friends? Way to go. (laughs) Best friends. And as Jesus looked at his best friend, you know, John was so old that the only part of life he had yet to endure was death. And John felt compassion for his friend regarding death. And so the first words out of Jesus' mouth was this profound statement of comfort. The Bible says that Jesus put his hand on John's shoulder and said, don't be afraid. And then he said these words. John, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. Jesus said, John, I died. And look. I am alive forever and ever. And John, look what I got. 
I hold the keys of death and the grave. Simple words, but as we meditate on them, I think you're going to see with me that it teaches us three truths about death that are utterly revolutionary if we believe them. And the first is this. Death is not the end. Death is not the end. Jesus says to John, look, John, I died. But look, now I'm alive. I've died and I've come out the other side of it and I'm still living. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is proof that there is life after death. I think many of us, if not all of us, have had moments of doubt, dark moments, maybe at the deathbed of a relative or friend, where you didn't, would never articulate to others what you're thinking, but you're worried, maybe this is it. Maybe you breathe your last breath and the machine stops beeping and your candle goes out and you cease to exist and there's nothing more. And it's a sickening doubt. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was given to us by God to help us pass that doubt, help us know that death is not the end. When when Jesus says, I died, but look, when he says, John, look, look, He's inviting him to examine the evidence. He's saying, my existence right now proves that one can die and still live on. I I always viewed the resurrection as proof, but I always viewed it as proof that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that he is the Messiah. The resurrection is proof of that, that Jesus is who he said he is. But it's also proof that life doesn't end at the grave that there is life beyond and that it's not the end. When I say the resurrection is the proof, some of you may say, I don't know if it, how do you know that it really happened? There are many reasons why we can be certain that Christ raised from the dead. I'll just give you one that's been really meaningful to me. And that is, I've already mentioned it, all of the disciples outside of John were executed for their faith. Here's why that's important. Those disciples knew whether this affirmation that Jesus resurrected was a lie or that it was true. They knew. They were the ones who had founded this religion boldly proclaiming that you all saw him crucified in Jerusalem on the cross and we're telling you he resurrected. He, he lived with us for 40 days. We shared breakfast with him. We walked along the road with him. We talked with him. And that's, that belief in the resurrection is how the whole Christianity thing got started. Now, is it feasible that the 12 were lying, that they had made it all up, that it was some sick joke? Feasible until you get to their execution. Because when the sword was held above their neck, all they had to do to save their skin was to say, joke's over, we were just kidding, he didn't resurrect really, I mean, we were just pulling everybody's leg, (laughs) ha ha. But they didn't do that. They said, I know what I know. Christ is alive. I saw him. I lived with him. I talked with him. Kill Kill me if you must. And they all, Gave their lives. Folks, that is evidence that the resurrection is true. And if Jesus lived beyond death, 
so can we. Death is not the end. Christ has gone before us to demonstrate that we too will live beyond the grave. Uh, it reminds me of when I went rafting a couple years ago up in Wisconsin on the Wolf River. Some of you have done that. We went, and at the end of our rafting adventure, the guide said, hey, if you got a little more courage left over, he goes, how about this? There's a waterfall here, and he brought us to the top of this waterfall, and he goes, how about you consider jumping? It was a long waterfall. He said, the pool below is very deep, so it's safe. And he goes, would you like to? He goes, let me give you some instructions. When you jump, he said, the waterfall is so powerful that the current will push you near the bottom of this pool. If you try to fight against it, you will lose. He said, in fact, just curl your knees up in a ball and let the current take you. It'll force you down, but then it'll move you forward. Eventually, you'll pop up. Eventually? Oh, great, you know. (laughs) You know, my heart's beating as I'm looking at this option. I'm not kidding you, a 14-year-old girl, all of 99 pounds, says, I'll do it, woo! And we were all in awe. And sure enough, she, as he said, disappears. And we're like, oh, dear Lord, please. And it seemed like an eternity, but eventually, poop, there she popped up, laughing and saying, it was awesome. And the fact that the little girl went first, gave me the courage to do the same. (laughs) And that's kind of what Jesus did. Jesus says, I know, death is scary. How about I go first? And Jesus jumped into death, and he was down for three days. And he popped up on Easter. And he said, look, it's safe to die. You now know that there is life on the other side of death. Death is not the and the resurrection proves it. Let's move to the next thing I see here. And that is that death is the beginning. We normally think of death as an end. Not so. Look at Jesus says, I'm alive, but more than I'm just alive. He says, I'm alive forever and ever. This is speaking of the eternity that the Bible teaches. It's hard to get our minds around, but scriptures promise that in heaven, paradise lasts forever. That God has created a second world, a world like this one in some wonderful ways, but vastly improved. The greatest improvement being that he will be visibly seen and we can interact with God and know his friendship and love in a tangible way. And God says that perfected paradise, how long will it last? The Bible teaches forever. It will never end. And when we're used to measuring time and years, decades, you know, in heaven we'll be talking about a million years being like a second. And when a thousand million years have passed, eternity has only begun. And when you Imagine a timeline, you know, of our eternity, and then you add planet Earth, the time on planet Earth to that continuum. How long is our time on Earth? It's this little blip. It doesn't matter if you live 40 years or 99 years. It's still just a blip. Earth life is so short compared to eternity. And the result of our understanding of what Jesus is teaching about forever is that we say, I'm done looking at death as the end. 
Death is really at the beginning, ushering in life at its best. It's like when I took Jorah. My, my daughter is, my 17-year-old was three at the time. We went down to Orlando to Disney World, and we were so excited. She was even more excited. I'll show you a picture. Do you know this is the monorail? Remember the monorail? It's kind of this tram that takes you from the parking lot to the Magic Kingdom. And I, I tried to, I was going to talk it up with Jorah, and I said, Jorah, here we go, here we go. Okay, this is the monorail. And I told her, it's a train that flies. And when you're sitting in one of these windows looking out, you can't see the track. And so it really feels like you're flying. And as a little three-year-old, she was so into it, so into it. I I think I oversold it because she didn't want to get off. You know, it ended and she's like, it's over? Dad, it can't be over. And I'm like, hon, it is. Come on, let's go. Tears were welling up in her eyes about having to get off the monorail. And I'm like, Jora, this is no big deal. I go, this is just the thing to get to the place. You know, this is, <laughs> look, Jora, look, look. And I pointed to Cinderella's castle and I said, that's the magic kingdom. Do you see the parallel? Life is a monorail. And some of us look to the end of our monorail ride and we're like, no, it can't be ending. It's not ending. The good part is just beginning. We're being invited into the kingdom of Almighty God. That's the real magic kingdom. And it's that paradise that we're stepping into through death. The monorail's fun at times, I'll admit it. But stepping off the monorail is no reason for tears and weeping and saying, I can't believe it's all over. The best is yet to come. It's just beginning. So going back to our outline, we know that death is not the end. Death is the beginning. And then the last thing I can take away from this verse is that Jesus, only Jesus, has the keys. Did you catch that? Jesus tells John, John, look what I got. I hold the keys. To where? To death in the grave. In the ancient world, keys were a sign of power and authority. The the highest empowered politicians would have a key to the city walls and to the municipal buildings and they would be viewed with great respect because they bore the keys and Jesus says I got power John power specifically what application I got power to get out of the grave this enemy is a powerful enemy Jesus says but I've got the keys that get us out of here Look at me, I'm alive. It it proves I've got the keys. When I was in high school, I went to Buffalo Grove High School. They had this awful hazing tradition where every homecoming, they would find an unsuspecting freshman boy and lock him in a trophy case. Uh, To call it a trophy case, that's what we called it. To be more specific, it was like a closet that had a massive glass wall with thick glass, and they would display trophies and various memorabilia in there. It had a door on one end, and they would take the freshman and they'd throw him in there and lock him in there. To be more specific, they would strip him of all of his clothes down to his underwear and throw him in the trophy case. You're laughing at that like you think it's funny. Are you a bully? Huh? No, you better not. It's terrible. This is a bad idea. And to see that poor kid, you know, just squirming in there in his own personal hell, 
It was awful. Thankfully, I was not thrown in there, but I saw a kid. And when he was thrown in there, first thing he did was he ran over to that door and he shook the handle and he tried to get the door open, but it was sound and wouldn't give. And then he looked out the window like, please help me, somebody. And we all wanted to help him. In fact, there were teachers there that wanted to help him. But we didn't have the keys. And so frantically, they're looking for the one guy who has the keys. You know, he was was the janitor, a powerful dude. In fact, uh, I remember his keys. They they looked like this. And uh, you could hear him coming from miles away. He he wore this on his belt, you know, and he would... uh, his keys would jingle. I think he had some kind of movement in his hip that made him jingle, you know, as he walked, you know. He was tough stuff, and he knew it, you know. And you see it had this expanding thing, you know. And, he'd... and so finally, when the guy with the keys came, everybody breathed. And he, you know, found the magic key and unlocked and rescued. This is where we're at. This is what we've got going. We've been locked, or we will be locked, in death, in the grave. And like this analogy with the freshmen at Buffalo Grove High School, so most humanity, you know what their first effort in response to the reality of death is? You know what they first try to do? I'll fix this on my own. I'll get out of here somehow. My own effort has got to be sufficient. Most people think they can get past death on their own merit. And you say, what do you mean by that? Well, if you go and ask people, hey, do you think you're going to go to heaven when you die? Most people will say, I think so, I hope so. And then if you ask them, why do you think that? You know what they say? I've tried to be a good person. I'm not perfect. Nobody is, I think. But when I compare myself to most, I am relatively moral I've done some religious things. What are they saying? They said, I believe or at least I'm hoping that my effort to be good is enough to take care of the death problem and get out of that mess. You know what the Bible says? You're wrong. The Bible is so crystal clear that no amount of good deeds and righteous living will ever get a single person out of death in the grave. That no matter how stellar we may be, the truth is we're all sinners. And we don't have the keys. We cannot solve that problem on our own effort. We need someone else. Now, the second thing people do, if they can't get out themselves, they look to others who can't help. You know, I, I think of pastors, you know, or parents. Oh, pray for me, do something for me. Or, or religious leaders. You know, I think of Mohammed and Buddha and Confucius, the founders of these religions, they all promise much, but when it comes to dealing with the problem of death, do they have the keys? No. In fact, those guys are in the grave still. The fact that their bones are in the grave demonstrate they don't have the keys. Are Jesus's bones in the grave? No. He resurrected, he ascended and went to heaven, and as a result, through that, he demonstrates when it comes to death, I'm the guy you need. And so the question remains, do you know the guy 
with the keys? Do you have a reconciled relationship with Jesus Christ? The God who made the earth saw the problem that our rebellion caused. That problem is death. And God gave a solution. He sent his son to die on the cross to pay the penalty for mankind's rebellion so that those who turn to him with desperate eyes and say, you're my only hope, Jesus Christ, who turn in prayer and say, save me, save me, Jesus. You're the only way. That gaze of dependence upon the rescuer will bring us together. We say, Jesus, forgive my sins. Jesus, lead my life. I'm going to listen to your jingle, if you will. I'm going to follow you through the rest of life. I'm going to follow you into death. You are my hope. And folks, I'm here to tell you, if you know the guy with the keys, you don't need to worry about death. Now, if you don't know the guy with the keys, if you've never been reconciled through Christ to the Lord, then yeah, you should fear death. You should be scared to death to die. Death is not safe if you don't know Jesus. But if you do know Jesus, you don't need to worry about it anymore. The Apostle Paul, like, taunted death. Do you remember 1 Corinthians 15? Paul goes, ooh. Well, he didn't do the ooh. But I think he kind of did. And he said, oh, death, what happened to your victory? Oh, death, he said, where's your sting? He's saying, you know, you used to threaten to be so scary and so painful. Paul's like, ah, come on. You don't scare me at all. And how did he get to that? Why did he get to that? He got to that because of what Jesus did. Death is a problem. It's a big problem. But the Bible says Christ came to deal with this problem. That Jesus looked at death and he said, I'm going to face you head on. I'm going to enter into death. I'm going to fight the beast, if you will. And the Bible says that Jesus defeated death. What does that mean? It means that he entered into death when he died on the cross, and then Jesus delivered death a devastating blow on the third day, on that Easter, when he rose again. Jesus says, death, you cannot hold me. And in that moment, Jesus transformed death. And rather than being a dead end, he made death into a doorway to pass through. He paved a way for us to follow so that we too can enter into eternity. And when I die, I'm I'm not going to be, my time will come, my body will grow weak, and I know that in that moment, I'm going to say, Jesus, I followed you in life, and now I will follow you in death. And I'll go, I'll step into death. I'll step into it, and I'll step through it, into the presence of Almighty God, and in him I will live forever. And so can you. So I got to ask the question again. Do you know the guy with the keys? Let's, let's take care of that business right now, shall we? I know this sounds crazy, but in a moment, in one prayer, we can look God in the eyes and say, I've been running from you all my life, but now I'm turning to you. I understand you're my only hope. 
And so I want to offer a closing prayer where you can do just that, shall we? Bow your heads with me. Lord, we're on sacred ground because there's a bunch of people who right now are going to get right with you as we pray. We acknowledge that death is a major problem. And we can't take care of it ourselves, Jesus. We just acknowledge we're messed up, we've all blown it, and we're not that impressive morally, not impressive enough to earn our way in heaven. And so we give up looking to our own effort. We give up looking to others. We look to you, Jesus Christ, the resurrected one. Save us. Wash away our sin. Apply what you did on the cross. Apply that to our lives. And take our lives. Lead us. We're going to follow you forever. We're going to stumble and follow in you, but we're going to get back up and keep following you all the way through death and into eternity. Thank you, Jesus, for grabbing the keys, for paving the way. We pray this in your name. Amen.